Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. I'm Alison Humphreys. Uh, of Recruitment Leadership. Um, it's a business that works with recruitment owners and directors to help them achieve their objectives, whether that's substantial growth or more profit or a business event of some kind or just working more sanely um, in this competitive market. Now, I'm delighted to be joined today by Ryan McCabe. Ryan is the Chief Executive of Odro, which is a video interviewing platform that's been very successful in the recruitment sector. Um, hello, Ryan. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Alison. Uh, we're going to talk, first of all, this morning about um, the changing landscape of the recruitment market. So, just to give this some context, last week I was talking to uh, a recruitment business owner who's actually been in the industry for a long time and he started in a new sector. It was the first time he really he's had to think about his brand and his offering for 20 years. And it was really clear to me from our conversation that he was still working on some 20th century assumptions. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you some examples. Um, first of all, he still seemed to think it was possible to grow a successful recruitment brand just using telephone calls. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> we're both laughing, but there are a number of people out there who yeah. do still think like that. Number two, he had an assumption that um, was based on what I found now to be outdated. In that, he thought, if you could find a client, give them a great service on one job, get them to use you for all their jobs, and then sit back and wait for the money to roll in in the repeat business, that effectively you'd only need maybe 10 clients. Now, when I pointed out to him that since the, the recession, that doesn't tend to happen anymore, that anyone who is spending substantial amounts on recruitment pretty soon is going to start looking at how they can do it um, more, more effectively, more cost-effectively, perhaps by bringing in a master service provider, by automating certain processes, by building their own employer brand, um, or just by having an in-house team. And suddenly, your cash cow client has disappeared. I could see a light, this, this um, client having a light bulb moment yeah. uh, when he realised that things weren't just going to be the same as they'd been <laughs> in the 20th century. So I thought our listeners would be very interested in um, hearing us talk about all sorts of innovations, how they've worked, mm-hmm. why they failed in some cases. Yeah. And obviously, we're going to start with video interviewing. So in summary, um, could you just talk us through why you think video interviewing and you know the rise of Audro is a good example of that, why you think it's become um, so 
current in the recruitment industry? Yeah, I mean, I've talked about the infrastructure and things like that of, of what's actually helped video um, progress through. I can go into that later. But um, I think driving value because of how competitive the market is is, is a very important a very important part of this. So um, whether it's video or whether it's anything else, it has to drive value through the stakeholders in the process. So the three stakeholders we focus on are the client, the candidate, and the consultant that uses it. Mm-hmm. And if those three people are getting benefit from the change, it will work. If only one of those or only two of those are getting the benefit, it will fall down eventually. So you have to make sure that any change you put in, in my experience, any change you put into a recruitment business has to uh, please at least those three stakeholders. Mm. Um, otherwise, um, otherwise, any innovation or, or, or any anything that you're trying to change will um, could eventually fall down. Okay, so a lot of the um, recruitment business owners that I work with have embraced video interviewing as part of their offering, um, partly because it can shorten the recruitment cycle. Um, very often because it's showing our client a candidate rather than a CV, yeah. which sounds fundamental, but actually is, is a big shift for a lot mm-hmm. of people. Um, but it doesn't have to involve a technology platform, does it? Successful innovation can include all sorts of things that aren't just replicating what you did before when you were an employee. Yeah. Um, so KPIs is a shiny example. We've probably both been in businesses where people have simply put up on the board the same KPIs that they worked with when they were a trainee. <laughs> yeah. And there's a question mark there. Are they really relevant anymore? So one of my particular pet hates is CV sent, minutes on the telephone, <laughs> um, <laughs> which uh, is a really blunt instrument. What are your thoughts on, on KPIs and how they can reflect the, the current market better. Yeah, so people, um, I'm, I'm a fan of KPIs. I think we spoke off air. I think people need to understand what good looks like and KPIs tell you that. So, um, but if they are put in to make sure people are working, there's a different, that's a different tool that you're using there. KPIs should be key performance indicators. And if you don't know what drives performance? Don't put the number in there. Um, how do what? Why is it twenty calls a day? Why is it forty calls a day? Why is it ten candidates? And in, and the reason can't be, as you said, because it worked for me twenty years ago. Mm. It doesn't work like that. So for me, I think from a, um, I I love, um, I love the fact that the businesses, the most successful businesses I've seen, their KPIs are built from data. They've looked at their own data. They've looked at, um when we get a job that has this aspect and this benefit and this we fill it more we mm. fill three out of four of them or we fill them all so why aren't we focusing on this um you know talking about things that maybe um uh, well, you know when you mention it in case you're going to say this but you mentioned it about you know people allowing you to go to site that is a it's not something that's a kpi you can put that in how many of your jobs allow you to come on site that's a great buying yeah. signal yeah so a few years back i did this piece of work with a client of mine and we looked at the jobs that we filled, was there, were there any characteristics that they shared? So as you quite rightly say, Ryan, one of them was the client would allow us to visit them on site. They saw a benefit in that, but yeah, at a very practical level, it allowed the consultant to sell that opportunity better and to create a good working relationship. So um, a site visit was a key factor. The other factor that we found was that all the clients where we f- went on to fill the job, or the vast majority of them, um, had uh, agreed to give us uh, interview slots uh, 
um, within a week of that initial call. Um, and yes, there was obviously some talking them into that position, making them understand the importance of availability of candidates and um, not just working on the basis of finding an ideal CV, but yeah. running the whole thing like a project. But once we'd identified those characteristics, we could either try to take future clients down that route, can we come on site, can we have interview slots, um, or deprioritise those clients who were simply weren't willing to work that way. And I think that's a big mistake that um, traditional agencies that aren't innovating are making where they say, like for example, you're talking about these characteristics of a job. Mm. To the agencies that are underperforming, a job is a job. Get 20 jobs, get 10 jobs, but there is absolutely no context on what a job is. Mm. But if you say, you know, let's say we talk about grading jobs, you have A jobs to C jobs or D jobs, mm. and then you start to, as you say, prioritise or deprioritise those jobs based on your success. I don't, I actually don't think it's a difficult thing to work out. Mm-hmm. It maybe, it maybe take you a month. But think of the how accurate your forecasting can become mm. if you then have priorities and jobs and your KPIs. Instead of saying you need to get 10 jobs, you say, no, you need to get three A jobs. Mm-hmm. And you can fill the rest with B jobs, but if you've got 10 jobs and they're all C jobs, we're, we're going to have a problem because you're probably not going to hit your number. Yeah. Actually, to extend that thought, if you look at business development calls, if somebody's making rubbish business development calls, <laughs> more doing of more of them <laughs> is actually counterproductive, isn't it? Yeah. You're just going to annoy more and more potential clients in yeah. your community. Uh, the conversions are a very important part of KPIs, I, I see as well. So um, from uh, we, we're a tech business, right? So from our tech business, we say, okay, we have identified the client. And then the conversion from identified to conversation is one. And then conversation to demo booked is another. Mm-hmm. And then demo booked to what we call positive post demo is another. And then they go to close. If, for example, we say, okay, we want to make our team better. If their conversion rate on in conversation to demo is great, but they're not closing, it's usually because their conversion from demo to post positive post demo is poor. That's demo training they need. It's not sales training they need. They can get the demos. So why so we, why would we train them on cold calling mm-hmm. to, to make the funnel go better? They're good at that. Mm-hmm. So if you split your KPIs into the funnel and say, what parts of the funnel is the recruiter falling down on? Mm-hmm. Are we getting a job on, but then we're not getting interviews? Okay, we need better understanding of what the job brief is. Mm-hmm. And we agree the job brief, so the interviews are, un, are you know, you can't, Distinct, you can't say you're not getting an interview. You said we match this, you'll interview them. Mm. So there's there's stages that identify training needs, and I think that ties in quite quite well to KPIs um, because then you can actually have um, different KPIs for different people. Mm. Somebody might only need to win ten jobs to fill eight. Why KPI them in twenty jobs? They're going to spend their time filling, finding twenty five jobs instead of filling the ten they've got. Mm, absolutely right. Really good example. So there's a key thing there. First of all, is assume nothing. Don't just copy from the past. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, linked to that, I think that a lot of people just inherit their pricing structure. So for as long as I can remember, the norm in the recruitment industry has been to charge a percentage of the salary of yeah. people that you place on. 
Why? I, I, do I we almost... actually do twice the work to pay someone on 60k that we do on 30k? No, I, I totally, I'm so glad you said that. I've never had this conversation with anyone publicly, but internally people know I am so, so against percentage of salary. So we work with recruiters as a business mm. and they say, we'll only charge you, you know, 20% of this. I'm saying, well, now it's in your interest to get them to be paid more mm-hmm. because you want more money. Yeah. That's You're not working for me then, you're working for the candidate. We should be having an, an offer a conversation about what are you going to do and what do you want paid for that so that's I I totally agree that that is a a very very good point that people miss and if you've got um, your proposition sorted out there's a reverse argument isn't there that says look Mr Client Miss Client pick your own price so um, it depends how much skin you're willing to put in the game for example if you are happy to see me, give me interview slots, work with me exclusively, the fee will be X. Mm-hmm. And X is your lowest price because that's a bird in the hand. You know yeah. you can fill it. Now, obviously, this relies on you having a really good candidate network and yeah. being good, skilled in all other aspects of your job. If, on the other hand, Mr. Client, you are putting this um, vacancy out with five agencies, then the fee is going to be x plus y because it's a risk because we don't know that we're going to fill it and i've also seen people successfully um for example put a cap or offer a fixed fee Mm -hmm. um, because they say they've productized and they've said this is what we will deliver doesn't cost us any more to deliver it for a 50k than a 40k candidate Mm -hmm. or we'll give you peace of mind that there's a cap there no matter what we negotiate for the candidate yeah yeah so there's no conflict of interest as far as the, the client and recruiter are concerned. Um, and um, in terms of pricing, again, people inherit their rebate structures. Rebate structures is a big thing as well. When you're talking about the, the pricing, when you, you mentioned there that kind of you pick your own price, um, that there's a, 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 I see a very easy halfway house there. So if we, talk, we, we touched on productizing there, if you have your price for... Uh, go to the market, find CVs, telephone interview and send them and you only get paid on contingent, you have bullet points of what you provide for that payment and that payment structure. Mm-hmm. You then have that second product, they get a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. But then when the client negotiates with you and says, yeah, I want that product, but I'm going to pay 15%, you say, oh, no problem. For 15%, we take these services off and you get that. Mm-hmm. Say, no, I want that. So okay, well, which lever do you want to pull? Mm-hmm. You know, which service do you not want? Obviously, it all costs money and I'm happy to be creative with you, but we, you know, I can't just give you things for free. Like, we're running a business, you're running a business. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I listened to a podcast actually um, on a run yesterday and it was just a sales podcast, but the very, um, it was a, it was a very eloquent way that the guy put it. He said, when you're negotiating on price and the client tries to negotiate with you on price, you say, okay, look, I'm happy to get creative with the price, there are four levers that you can pull that we can get creative on. First one is volume. Mm-hmm. You give us more volume, we can, that's, that's beneficial for us. Uh, payment terms, so you pay as quickly or upfront or anything else, that, that again is a good thing for us. Um, what was the other ones? Um, it was volume, it was payment terms, it was length of contract. So this was a software thing I was listening to, but yeah. translate that into recruitment. So it was, uh, you know, if you're doing a three-year contract rather than a two-year contract, that's better for us. Yeah. Um, and there was these levers that you pull and it made the client take control. And they said, okay, well, you know, if you want to, if you want a better deal, we can do that for you. Mm. You just need to know there's some come and go. And I thought that was a really eloquent way yeah. of putting it. We do see a lot of less experienced recruiters 
getting sucked into a conversation that's purely about pounds. Yeah. And actually, there's a lot more variables involved there. Um, but just to go back to rebate terms, mm-hmm. most of the recruiters that I work with start from a sort of 13-week basis. Some of them vary slightly on that. Actually, 13 weeks, if you're placing it at executive level, mm-hmm. doesn't do say much about your brand, does it? Yeah. Most, most permanent clients don't make a judgment about the quality of that placement until six months or a year down the line. Mm-hmm. And if your process really is as good as you say it is, yeah. and you're satisfied that it's delivering um, great hires, then why not put your money where your mouth is? Mm-hmm. Why not say, look, you know, I've got uh, one client of mine found he had nothing to lose. Yeah. Because when he went back and did all his post-placement follow-up, all these people were there after a year. Yeah. So, or they'd been promoted, which is a, a really great outcome. You can make that, um, you could formalise that a little bit more. I'm always very, I'm, I'm a big believer in having a set of rules that is, you know, that shows you what good looks like. So yeah. um, the reasons for candidates leaving are very important. So you say, look, yeah, we'll put a year's rebate in. However, can we categorise what, what, at what point, if they leave, what is our fault? And what can we not control? Mm-hmm. So, if, for example, you know, I'm just making something up on the spot. But for example, you say, look, we're going to have to make that department redundant. We've done all our work. We've found that good position. That if you're making a whole department redundant, that can't be on us for you know for a whole department's shortcomings when we've found the person you wanted us to find. Mm-hmm. So, if you can set those rules out early, your risk is diminished again. Yeah, absolutely. I do a lot of work with clients on their uh, with my clients, recruitment business owners on their terms and even something as simple as that can make a difference so i would i would often recommend that people exclude anything that may potentially be unfair dismissal uh, any redundancy situation um, and uh, they exclude those from their rebate terms and on the flip side that they also put a, a clause in their terms that say before instructing us you, have inve- you, the client, have investigated whether there are any candidates, either in your ATS or your current workforce, that might be interested in this job. Yeah? Oh, very good. Um, yeah. And it's a very reasonable condition before you start work on an assignment, isn't it? Yeah. yeah? So that's an example of non-tech innovation, de- uh, evolution, if you will. A um, couple of other interesting ones that I've observed uh, are the better use of psychometrics Um, and for anybody who isn't first-hand on psychometrics um, we're not just talking about what people call personality tests here color they are Uh, (laughs) we are also covering aptitude tests and job specific um, test questionnaires and there's all sorts of developments for example gamification of tests so that they're not just based on self-reporting um, they, the average cost of them has come down substantially, and there's some very interesting providers. I'm 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 interested to know because this is learning for me. So, um, as an outsider who probably um, an experience tells me that um, most of them are aimed at personality tests. What other hidden things do people not under not realise that psychometrics can give you? Right. So, um, the biggest. Classification is what they call aptitude tests. Right. In other words, we're doing an objective test where there are right answers, okay. yeah, usually based about, around things like um, verbal and uh, linguistic uh, aptitude uh, and or problem solving. Yeah? Right, okay. So 
there, there's a limit to how much how long you can get people to sit through tests um, yeah. so they need to be you know short functional and importantly you need to understand exactly what the relevance of that test is to the job that you're recruiting for um, too often what I see is people just tack on a psychometric as a sort of luxury item you know <laughs> like having your towels folded into the shape of swans or something and um and there's an extra charge for it at the end it's in it's sort of belt and braces actually you could do some really good work by introducing low-cost psychometrics much earlier in the process and then saying to your client look mr client i know you asked for things i can read off a cv a certain number of um, years experience, a level of qualification, this kind yeah. of thing. But actually, we can say from this objective test that this person has the skill set, the aptitude, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, it might be the uh, numerical ability, for example, to do your job better than this other guy whose CV might match what you've described yeah, slightly better. So you can end up with a completely different shortlist if you bring aptitude tests in successfully. You mentioned about how important it was to pick the right one oh. for the job. How do, how, how do you determine that? Right. Well, there's the, the traditional method, which is to actually run some tests on the existing workforce. Oh, that's good. Um, and that can benchmark, you know, yeah. successful. So I've done this myself when I was running a, a quite substantial recruitment company. I had enough historical data to say, okay, so we know who has um, overperformed uh, since hiring, who's an average performer and who's underperformed. Mm-hmm. And um, we had enough data to uh, take at the point where we were hiring those individuals to see where the correlations were. And actually, we slightly changed the profile of people that we look for as a result of that exercise. The other way, which is less time-consuming and um, maybe easier to implement, is to actually just get all the stakeholders and have a conversation with them. So recruiters often make the mistake of dealing only with one person in their client organisation, don't they? And very few hiring decisions are just made by one person these days. So let's say there are three people who are actually involved. Those people might end up doing the first, second, third interviews or the final sign-off. And actually, because they've never had the conversation, they may have a fundamental disagreement about, for example, what good communication skills look like or um, what confidence looks like, those kind of things. Um, And so... Uh, client one passes the candidate through to the next stage of the process client two meets them and thinks why on earth has my colleague forwarded this person yeah. <laughs> yeah. actually if you can have that conversation with all three parties um, say well why is this skill important how do you see the job what's it got to deliver you are um, actually ironing out any um, potential issues future, different yeah. um, views of the job one of the one of the things that I just want to add to that for the listeners because I think it's something we've learned very recently as in, in the last few days it was a, a light bulb moment for us um, a good thing for as a software company we want to make sure all the decision makers that we want to be there are there at the demo mm-hmm. and if you say who else is involved in the decision making process it gets people's back up and they go oh, it's all me it's mm-hmm. me that makes the decisions here you just you do what you're supposed to do for me mm-hmm. and it's the same in recruitment and you want to know who else is involved they're quite cagey about telling you and a very very good question to ask when you're in that very first discovery of okay we're going to nail the brief before you start 
who's going to be disappointed that they missed this meeting? Mm. It's a really nice question. Like yeah. Really nice question. It gives you an idea. Oh, John's on holiday just now, or Jessica's out at a meeting just now. That's fine. We'll, what we'll do is we'll bring her back in. We'll relay what we've made, uh, what we've what we've got to, and we'll see if she agrees. And it brings you to that consultative approach to say, I know what I'm doing. I've done this before mm. without having to be too pushy. So f- from bringing those, I like that in. phrasing. That's really good. And um, so a couple of other um, innovations, developments that uh, I've worked with clients with. Um, that have been successful are introducing statement of works business mm-hmm. now that's come way up a lot of people's agenda because of the IR35 issue um, but depending on this, the market you work in and how deep your knowledge of it is that can be an absolute game changer um, what I would say on the statement of works is that you have to actually be able to define the works very <laughs> carefully um, so if we just build on the idea we were talking about earlier about productizing traditional recruitment services actually with statement of works you have to be able to say this is where the works begin and end because you've got to price it accurately and in that pricing you've got to allow for wastage in terms of travel defects um you know whatever uh, service absence sickness um, unable to deliver services, all of those right, things, okay. even your meeting time. So you've got to really understand your what's words. going on at nitty gritty level, um, and what the people that you've been hiring are actually delivering in order to do that successfully. Um, some of my clients have um, gone a step further on the traditional recruitment business by providing dashboards or some sort of more sophisticated reporting mm-hmm. to their clients. Um, uh, either live, i.e. while assignments are, are being worked, you know, in terms of progress in, within each assignment, or by supplying summary um, summary data at the end of an assignment. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, example, it might be feedback on the employer brand, feedback on um, what advertising sources worked for them, mm-hmm. um, uh, even, in one case, providing a, a talent pool with candidates' permission, at the end of the process, into the client. Yeah. So all of those things can be priced for, and it does depend what your client values, doesn't it? So I was just about to say, so it's all about value um, and delivering more value to the client. Um, I think if we relate this dashboard idea back to KPIs, mm-hmm. as this is, it's your KPIs and the client, as long as that data, we've, we've agreed that that data is important, and what that data would translate to in pounds and pence, I think it's a great idea. Mm. Um, it's just to make sure that it's not a dashboard for dashboard's sake. Exactly. You know, and I think that's people that go that leans towards the tech innovation, quote unquote, rather than the no, we're truly innovating your process, we're innovating or adding value to your services, our services. And that actually takes us neatly to successfully implementing change like this because dashboard bells, whistles, whatever, for their own sake, mm-hmm. just as novelty rarely make any profitable impact on a recruitment business, don't they? So, um, I know that um, at Odro, you put a lot of emphasis on um, training people to build the new service into their proposition. Um, What other tips would you have in terms of implementation, successful implementation of change? 
Um, so I'll always go on setting the success criteria early at the start. The very beginning, you have to say, what does good look like at three months? What does it look like at six? And what does it look like at 12? If you don't have that, you can't say if it was good or bad oh. at these points. It's very easy to forget about it and just say, we're getting caught up in this wave. It's really exciting. Let's just go. Mm. But for everyone involved, if they don't know what they're aiming for, how do you expect them to take the shot? So um, I think it's very important to set that. I also think um, continuous development, continuously checking in. There was, a, there was an adage that someone um, someone told me a long time ago and about training, and they said, um, I went for golf lessons, and the, the golf pro put a, tee, put a ball down on the tee, and he said, right, take a swing. And I took a swing, and he said, okay, lean all your weight on your left foot, Turn your grip inside, move your hands four millimetres apart, move your elbow back, make sure it lines up with your right foot, swing through as hard as you can, make sure your right hand's facing the sky when you do that, and make sure you're looking straight ahead and don't lift your head. That's a lot. <laughs> okay, and he said, right, now put a ball down, right, okay, go hit a shot, and I hit a shot, right, okay, you left it, and he went all the way through, and you go to another golf pro, and he puts the ball down in the tee, and he says, take a shot. I took a shot, and he said, put all your weight in your left foot, and I take a hundred shots. How does that feel? Mm-hmm. Feels quite good. Right now, turn your hand in. And that's the way to get people to buy in, to change and feel the difference as you go. And that's where I relate that back to continuous development. Mm-hmm. You can't tell them everything in one go because they'll forget the important parts or at least some of them. Mm-hmm. So start with the easy wins. Get in what's the most impactful low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. So for example, for a low-hanging fruit for Audro, is um, who here, if we were in the training room, we say who here has lost a candidate because the client took too long to give you feedback. Every hand goes up. Mm-hmm. Okay, those clients are the ones that you pitch your new video service to because you've got a pain point related to that you can solve. Bingo, that's that, no more. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on that. How did that feel? It was good or oh, they said this. Okay, we'll talk them through that. So this continuous development and any implementation has to be done in the right way. Mm-hmm. You can't just put loads of information on someone and then hit them with a hammer until they've learned it. Yeah. So it's a really good point, well made, isn't it? That training is a continuous process mm. and um, just telling people once is not going to change. And the hardest people to change are the people who have a successful, yeah. moderately successful recruitment practice, don't they? So I'm a big fan of visual reminders, ongoing training, even, yeah, making... Um, making the new product a KPI mm-hmm. um, as long as as you pointed out it's not just loading more work onto people yeah. um, and it doesn't matter how much training you provide managers have to implement it at desk don't they absolutely really absolutely mm, okay. so just one other thought and that's about um, employer branding mm-hmm. um, so I had a, a client a couple of months ago who said I do employer branding. I said, tell me about that. What it actually involved was him sitting in a room with his client saying, let me tell you what I think about your employer brand. (laughs) Um, And do you know what? Actually, the guy had some valuable insights, but there was no rigour to it at all. Um, And if you think about what a a true brand consultancy will do, there will be objective measures, they will do some comparative analysis with other brands that are competitors, Mm -hmm. Um, they'll perhaps do some surveys and so forth to base their opinions on. So um, it's not just somebody sharing their opinions and trying to charge for it, is it? I think everyone, but employer brand right now is something I'm a, a very big believer in because people can now find out a hell of a lot more about you than they used to. Mm. Um, through social networks and things and um, 
if if someone is considering looking, you know, we should really focus on building an employer brand. Unfortunately, what they don't know is they already have an employer brand. Ah, yeah. It's always there. Everyone does have one, whether you like it or not. You have one, and you need to. If you think that it needs work, you need to start now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, employer branding is a, is a massive, as uh, a massive thing. Yeah. Okay. So there we have some. Thank you very much for just shooting the breeze with me there, uh, right? No, we have some some thoughts, some technical, some non-technical about how you can um, evolve your recruitment business, um, and for uh, practical implementation. And um, please do contact me, Alison Humphreys at Recruitment Leadership, or if you'd like to talk to Ryan in more detail about Odro, I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you. So yeah. thank you very much for listening. This has been the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, Season 3. Thanks. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn, where you can follow Recruitment Leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.